I'm glad to be able to kind of open up some questions here uh, of Mark, Dr. Yarhouse. And, uh, you know, for me, in my own work as a counselor, as a psychologist, uh, probably Dr. Yarhouse's work has been more important to me uh, than anybody else's over the last 10 years. I remember reading him first time and his uh, sexual identity therapy and uh, matched up very, very well with the, uh, some of the lack of impact that I ran into in my uh, council of people dealing with same-sex attraction, that it was much, uh, very much the exception that those attractions changed, and it seemed to me that focusing on trying to change their attractions uh, just uh, might not be the most helpful place for us to do our work. And so uh, uh, really appreciative of his work and, and also of your mind and your heart uh, and the way you use it for, for God's glory and the love of some people that are really struggling with some stuff. And so I'm going to open with a few questions and then um, throw it out to you all uh, for your questions. And I, I thought I'd just start with a, a personal one first. How did you get into this zone where you're primarily, you're a Christian psychologist, but your primary work now is in the world of, of uh, sexuality. How'd that happen? Yeah. Well, let me, again, thank you for <clears throat> inviting me to campus and letting me talk with you about these things and appreciate getting the chance to meet many of the faculty and students here. Um, yeah, I, I ha had no interest in this topic when I went to graduate school. Um, I don't know how most of us end up in the areas of uh, emphasis that we have, our specializations, but I, mine was uh, not a path I would have chosen. So I was a um, graduate student at Wheaton College, and the department chair there, Stan Jones, had invited me to be his research assistant, which was such an honor that I said yes without knowing what I was, um, you know, getting into. Uh, that was more my pride, I think. My, um, and we met, and I wasn't even prepared for the meeting. I hadn't read anything that he'd written. I didn't know what we were doing. And so he, lined out, he outlined three things that he researches on. One of them was homosexuality, and he was asking for help there. I was a philosophy major at my undergraduate, so it was a question of looking at the logical relationship between scientific findings and their use in church moral debates. And that became a major paper we had written and then became the first book that uh, we worked on together. So that that got me into it. He became the provost, which is the senior academic um, administration uh, position at the school. So he was overwhelmed with those responsibilities and couldn't do the writing and the speaking that was demanded of him unless his research assistant <laughs> did, it, did it with him or uh, went instead or whatever. So I did a lot of that early on in my career. Um, and then when I graduated, now we're like, you know, five years later, I just didn't see Christians in the field of psychology writing on this at all. There was no, there were really no Christians that I saw publishing in this area. And the Christians that I did see outside of the field didn't seem to know the research that well. And so it, you know, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. I, I prayed about it. I felt like I held it loosely in my hands. And I felt like it was a matter of being a good steward of the years that I'd had, the training I'd had, the things that I knew. And a number of other things unfolded, doors opened, um, students would come to research with me. And since then, you know, it's been 17 years, I've had students who, for whom this is their story, they research with me. Um, I've read 
hundreds of transcripts of people's stories, and now it now it does matter to me. It's very much matters to me the lives of people navigating this terrain. But on the front end of it, I did not have an axe to grind. I was not in it for a particular reason, and I think that's actually served me well in a lot of different venues where people want you to be uh, in battle with them, and I'm not particularly that way. So, um, so anyway. One of the one of the things that we're hearing a lot about and came up in the uh, recent uh, conference that our own Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission did, uh, Russell Moore and some of those folks, is uh, reparative therapy, uh, which is a type of therapy aimed to change same-sex attraction. Um, what's your take on reparative therapy or e even ministries that aim to change same-sex attraction? Yeah, so historically I've defended a person's right to pursue such change. As an adult, I think, you know, there's a question that's more fundamental of self-determination and autonomy, and I don't like taking that away from somebody who wishes to pursue that. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm more concerned about that with minors um, because of the potential. I don't see a lot of minors asking for it, and I do see more parents and the potential for um, harm to come or misuse to come, uh, well-intended as it could be. A lot happens beyond my office. Um, if I give suggestions that could, that could run afoul, and I get concerned about, about some of that um, when I work with people. But I've defended people's right as adults to pursue it. And now reparative therapy is a subtype of conversion therapy, and it's a particular model based on a theory of causation and a theory of change. And I'm leery of any approach. I already shared in chapel that I, we don't know what causes sexual orientation. So to hold out a theory that says, I do know, and I'm seeing this with you know the people that I'm working with, I, I do know what caused your homosexuality. And if we do these things, um, it will be resolved. I think those are two claims that deserve greater um, empirical support. Do we know the cause? I would say no. So I'm hesitant to start with a theory that says we do. And I don't mind, you know, let's say there are difficult parent-child relationships. I would treat that. There is childhood sexual trauma. I would treat that. What I wouldn't suggest is that by resolving your relationship with your parents, you become straight. By resolving the negative emotional sequelae from abuse, you become straight. It's good to treat those things. I would do that, but I don't like theories that say and here's the outcome you can expect. In fact, I find that people can become hypervigilant about their same-sex sexuality, and that becomes the measuring, uh, the measuring stick against which they value their self-worth, their relationship with God, their Christ-likeness, and because most people don't experience as much change as they had hoped for, those, those expectations can be dashed, and that leaves a person in a very difficult place emotionally, and in terms of their relationship with God. Uh, and then we've had a variety of ministries that aim to change same-sex. Exodus used to be focused upon that once upon a time, and some others, uh, uh, Living Waters uh, focuses on that. Um, and uh, what, what's what, what, uh, another mode of change there, the spiritual mode? What, what's your take after uh, thinking and studying this stuff for a long time? Yeah, now that I feel like, the, so we studied the people in ministries like that who were trying to change for seven years, and, you know, people said that they were inherently harmful. We measured harm. 
on average, we didn't see it to be, it, the, the data did not show it to be harmful. If anything, there was a, re a reduction in the number of symptoms, the strength of the symptoms the person presented with. So the idea of like being in a prayer group, praying, reading the Word of God, worshiping together, that does not seem to be intrinsically harmful based on the measures we used over many years of participating in that. However, uh, again, does it help people change? I think it helped people change their identity. I think it helped people change their behavior. I think for some people, and that was radical for a lot of people who did experience change. And for some people, there was a report, uh, on average, uh, of meaningful movement along a continuum from same-sex attraction towards opposite-sex attraction. But that, that significant <clears throat> movement along a continuum is an average. For some people, there was greater movement. For some people, there was no movement. So again, for most people, I think they would have wanted more movement than they experienced. And I would, um, that brings us back to how do you minister when for most people it may be more of an enduring uh, condition or experience. Um, but again, I, I, I would, you know, as a psychologist, I'm not particularly critical of something outside of my own field. Like it's a ministry. I get that. It, it has its own right to exist and to offer that to people. I don't discourage people from participating in ministries as adults. I, I, um, I just am careful about how it's communicated to the public and how it, um, what, what is being promised and what your worth is being measured against. Mm -hmm. I know many people whose heterosexuality does not make them more Christ-like. So I don't know that measuring Christ-likeness by heterosexuality is a good idea. And I would focus more on sanctification. Uh, last last question, a um, little bit of a shift. Um, you know, uh, in uh, our world over the last five years, uh, pronouns in bathrooms have become problems. Uh, and once again, I, I know this is something you've thought a lot about, and you're a careful thinker. Uh, somebody introduces themselves to me uh, as... Uh, a he, uh, do I use uh, that pronoun if they were biologically female? Um, and then the bathroom question comes into it, should we provide uh, family bathrooms for, or some type of uh, nondescript bathrooms for people in our churches? Uh, or should we let them use the bathroom that matches up with their psychological choice of gender identity? Um, so just a few thoughts on pronouns and bathrooms. We, we have now shifted gears. <laughs> so this is a, to me, this is a different, a different experience, uh, really uh, remarkably different experience of gender dysphoria where someone experiences marked distress at the incongruence between their biological sex and their experience of their gender identity. So for the vast majority of people, these things come into alignment. It's not even a question. But for a small percentage of people, there is a, there's an incongruence, a lack of alignment, and that is distressing to that person. That distress can ebb and flow in its magnitude, but can be remarkably distressing. So people try to manage that dysphoria through very creative solutions, and long before we had hormonal treatment or surgeries available. People were managing that across other cultures, in our culture. And I think of that those as the most invasive or most involved 
procedures for managing it, use of hormones, which have um, partially irreversible consequences. Surgery, irreverse, um, uh, it's, there, are, there are irreversible consequences, right? So those are the most invasive steps. But think of it still conceptually as I'm trying to manage my dysphoria. So on a continuum, most people don't do those things. Most people do lesser invasive things. Biological male who wears light makeup or grows out his hair longer or um, cross-dresses intermittently or something like that. Female who keeps her hair short, doesn't wear uh, acutely feminine attire, um, things like that. That's the vast majority of people who are gender dysphoric do something like that. Okay, now, somebody comes to me, introduces themselves as a male and yet is biologically female. I'm going to use the person's preferred name if they're an adult. The only exceptions I make is I figure this out with parents if they're coming to me and they're a minor, and I need to balance respect for the teenager with the respect for the parents' wishes, and that's more complicated. But this person has come up to me at Starbucks, and here they are. So I'm going to, I'm going to be respectful to how the person presents themselves. And part of that is just a matter of, of, of mutual respect. Um, I don't begin a relationship, even if I disagree with choices a person may be making, I don't begin relationships by declaring what, that I think that they're wrong. If I'm trying to be in a relationship with a person, I, wanna, I want to be invited to speak into their life at some point, and I don't do that by starting out the gate. Let me offend you directly by speaking against what you've just asked for. Now, pastoring, shepherding, ministering to people would be different. Over time, that's going to be a question that we would have to explore together. But you're talking about meeting somebody. Now, restrooms, bathrooms. Um, I am, my answer is not going to be pleasing to most people um, in, this, in this sense. People want all or nothing right now. And this is a sign of the cultural wars. There's people who say, I should be able to choose whatever restroom I want based on my gender identity, and no one should have any constraints on me whatsoever. So that group is entrenching. The group in response to that is saying, that's ridiculous. That puts people at risk. And kind of all, all this, that's not going to happen. There should, be, there should not be accommodations for you. And those groups are going to be entrenched. Obviously, I hope it's obvious, there, ha there should be a place that is respectful of both, but everyone's going to have to give a little. What would that even look like? Now, churches are going to be one of those places that's going to be exempt from a lot of that for religious liberty arguments. I just don't know that churches ought to exercise every religious liberty that we have. I think of it more as an act of hospitality. I was interviewing someone who's gender dysphoric, is a Christian, uh, has not, had not transitioned or anything, but is gender dysphoric. And she said to me, biological female, if I go to your church and you have a family restroom, it so reduces my anxiety and my, it increases my willingness to come back because it doesn't make it an issue where I relieve myself. If you don't have a family restroom, I'm just not going to come back because I don't want to make that the point of focus where I use a restroom. Now, we offer family restrooms to people all the time because we're trying to accommodate parents who don't want to bring an older child into the restroom of the parent's sex and make other people uncomfortable. So having something like that helps a lot more people than just this. And 
many gender dysphoric people recognize that would be really helpful. There are voices who would say that's not enough. And that would be a concession for them to come in a little bit and say, but, but we are trying to be hospitable in line with what we believe theologically. I think many people, surprisingly, you may not agree with me here, would see that as an act of hospitality. Others will not. They'll define hospitality for you and tell you exactly what makes them feel at ease. And it'll go against your own doctrinal positions. And that's where we run into the culture wars again. So when I can, I try to be hospitable to people to provide for them um, because I want to be more missional. But I realize that there are forces in our culture on both sides that don't want to do that. Well, gang, it's your turn. All right. We will take questions now. Uh, what questions would we have? Yeah, right over here. And if you'll uh, speak up, we'll probably be fine. Yes. Be sure and say your name yeah. and then ask your question. Thank you, Dr. Yarhouse. My name is Greg Lamb. I'm a Ph.D. student here in the Biblical Studies program, New Testament. I just wanted to thank you for your talk, very enlightening, very interesting, certainly a highly uh, salient topic you know, for us today as ministers of the gospel. Um, I have a friend that I've worked with you know, for uh, several years who's now moved away um, to the Boston area. Her name's Leah, and she's been married to uh, her husband, Scott, for about 20 years. And uh, over the last two years, Scott has identified himself as a female and is planning on, you know, going through transgender, you know, this, this sexual realignment surgery and all this. As a minister of the gospel to her, I've tried to, you know, as much as I can, give her advice, you know, pray for her and, and Scott both and walk alongside them going through these hard situations. What advice would you give me as a minister or anyone else in this room that would maybe have to deal with such a situation? Yeah, Thank you for that, Greg. I, I think um, you know, these are some of the most painful sessions that I have, um, is working with couples where the one person is navigating gender dysphoria and then feels like it's not manageable without the most invasive steps. So this cross-gender, full-time cross-gender identification uh, with potential hormonal treatment and now surgery. So, um, I've worked with a few couples kind of navigating through that. Um, if they were in our church, you know, and I was in a role of um, eldering or shepherding over them, um, you know, I think I'd have to recognize that that person, the, the sympathetic, compassionate part that comes forward is saying they're trying to manage this dysphoria. When I've met with people, that's exactly what that has been like for them. And I'm trying to help them manage it in a less invasive way that lets them stay in the covenant that they've made together with their partner. Um, and, and by less invasive, you mean avoid the hormone replacement, avoid the surgeries if at all possible? I mean, are, what are creative ways that you can bring this? To, what are, in other words, it would be coping strategies, adaptive coping strategies that don't require um, surgeries or a sustained cross-gender identification that now puts your marriage at risk. Now, I know people who have transitioned and stayed together because of their theological beliefs, if you believe, if you can believe it. Like the conservative Christians who did not believe in divorce, but did not know another way to manage the dysphoria than these most invasive steps. 
I have great sympathy for them. Again, this is very rare that this happens, very rare phenomenon, and, and not typical to take all those steps to manage this dysphoria. So I think I would do pastoral care on a very one-to-one -one basis of how I shepherd that person. I'm, when I meet with people, I'm, I'm trying to honor the covenant that they've made as a husband and wife before God. And are they able to stay together? Is, what does my church teach about that? What are the grounds for divorce? What does that look like? Um, I'm probably going to be conversant with a multidisciplinary team. Honestly, that person's probably seeing a mental health professional, um, unlikely to be a Christian just by base rates and numbers here. Um, that They're going to probably seeing an endocrinologist. Uh, you know, there's going to be seeing a lot of different people, and I'm going to be a voice in that team. So that's an interesting place for most pastors, I think. Um, I would want to be able to highlight what are my spiritual concerns for this person as a shepherd? Like, what am I concerned about? Is, do I see this as sin? Is it the cross-gender identification that is the, is the moral concern here? Is it the act of cross-dressing? Is it putting the marriage at risk? Because the spouse will often say to me, I didn't sign up for this. I, they've looked at me in tears and said, I didn't choose to marry someone who's going to now present as female. Uh, one woman said to me, I'm not a lesbian. Like, that's not what I signed up for. Others have said, I didn't sign up for that. But like anybody else who has a health condition, my partner now has a psychotic break and is schizophrenic. I am not going to not be with them if they want to be with me. You know, so I've seen the range. And I don't know that there's one pastoral response to that couple that I would use with everybody. But I would begin to identify what are my concerns in shepherding them? What are the spiritual concerns of the identification, the expression, and its effect on the covenant that they've made? Those would be the three things I would come to my mind just off the top of my head. Hi, my name is Heath, and I teach here at Southeastern. Um, just a question about juvenile uh, dysphoria. Uh, how do we handle, or how should we think about that? How common is juvenile uh, gender dysphoria? And if, if we have folks come into our churches, and they're, you know, you're a children's worker, this is not hypothetical, uh, and you're a children's worker, I mean, how do we address the child? How do we show them love and, and nurture within the context of a church? How do we relate to the parents if the, if the parents are affirming, you know, if the, if the, if the child presents as a female and, and, and yet is, is dressing as a male and identifying, you know, themselves as male? Then the, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we handle that? Yeah, so the prevalence is hard to get good figures on. Um, if you look at the most uh, conservative estimates today, they're probably based on studies that were done in Europe of people seeking specialty clinics to transition. And that rate is like one in 10,000, 11,000, I think, biological males, one in 20 to one in 30,000 biological females. So very, very rare phenomenon. But that's a rare phenomenon seeking specialty clinics in Europe. So that's hard to really say how prevalent that is. And I've only seen two studies of national surveys today where they've included transgender as an option. You know, you'll say in your demographic, male, female, and they'll add transgender. And in those two studies, the rates was uh, one in 215 and one in 300. 
So that's much more common than people seeking specialty clinics in Europe. But transgender is imprecise. Transgender is an umbrella term for a lot of ways people experience their gender identity differently than those for whom there's congruence. So there's people over here who would say, I'm gender queer, I'm gender fluid, I'm um, gender variant, I'm gender nonconforming. We don't know yet if they have gender dysphoria, which is the thing that drives people towards these um, adaptations and, and interventions. So I, that's the range. That's the most generous percentage, and that's the most conservative percentage. Boy, it took a long time to explain. Okay, so uh, now you're a youth minister. I think it depends a lot on the philosophy of your youth ministry approach and your church's approach. You know, a lot of churches that I consult with want to be missional. They want to reach out to people who are unchurched or dechurched, and they don't want to create any obstacles for a person coming to their church. So when a teenager demonstrates gender atypical behavior, they don't react to that because they want to say to them in no uncertain terms, we want you here. It's in this context, out of these relationships, that you'll learn who Christ is. And we trust that it's in the context of that maturing relationship that that Christ-likeness and maturity, spiritual maturity over time will inform future decision-making. So we don't react to the gender atypicality. We minister to everything. I'll use this image tonight in the talk, but the tip of the iceberg might be gender atypicality or call me this or use this pronoun or things like that. Many times ministers respond to what's above the surface in an iceberg. What's under the surface of the iceberg is much more substantive, and that is a need for intimacy, a need to be loved, a need for identity, compassion, spiritual questions. Does God love me? Does God like me? Do you want me here? So a lot of churches, in my view, are at their best when they minister to what's underneath the surface and not overreact to what's above the waters. Uh, thank you for being here, Dr. Yarhouse. My name is Sam Ferguson. I'm a PhD student here and a minister up in Falls Church, Virginia. Um, <clears throat> my question is related to um, the relationship between, um, I guess, biology and sociology in this conversation. So it seems that the dysphoria is happening at the intersection of biological maleness or femaleness and a psychological social sense of femininity or masculinity. That sense of gender, masculinity or femininity, may be socially constructed, may be entirely irrelevant. Um, so my question is, it's almost like we're, we're trying to position people in that space where their biology lines up with a social understanding of who they ought to be or how they ought to act. And so I feel like this conversation requires a robust understanding of masculinity and femininity in a way that can actually bear weight. So it's not just a, a character, which is typically, I think, how culture operates. In your work, have you butted up against that question, one? And two, do you know anybody doing really good work on masculinity and femininity? Not so much in roles in the church, but I mean a real robust understanding of what does it actually mean? Um, yeah, I, I do think, I like the image of uh, uh, a kind of substantive research and scholarship 
on gender that would bear the weight of the discussion that's happening right now, that would serve ministry purposes would be terrific. I don't know somebody who's doing that work. I could not point you to somebody. It doesn't mean it's not going on, but I don't know of anybody really doing that work that, the way you described it. Um, I like the idea, though. I think that would be a gift to the church today. Um, the way that I talk about um, one of I, I, in my book, I talk about three lenses through which we see these topics. So one is integrity, one is disability, and one is diversity. So without going into all that, I'll talk about that more tonight. The diversity lens is the lens where the broader culture is today, saying. Um, your gender incongruence tells you who you are as an identity and as a community to celebrate you as a transgender person to celebrate your gender nonconformity. And I'm leery of that, right? I think as an evangelical, we would be leery of that. But I think there's actually two forms of it. One is what I call a strong form, which is a little bit more of an academic discussion. This is coming out of Foucault, this is coming out of Judith Butler, this is the deconstruction of gender roles and even biological sex as sources of authority that are oppressive to people who are on the margins. And I think that deserves a very strong critique from evangelicals who disagree on worldview grounds and a lot of other grounds uh, around that. But the weak form of it of the diversity framework is an emphasis on identity and community. And insofar as the body of Christ does not address fundamental questions of identity, who am I? Fundamental questions of community, of what community am I a part? We will continue to have gender dysphoric and people who experience same-sex sexuality leaving the body of Christ to find those normal needs, a need for identity, a need for community. They will find that in the broader LGBT community because they don't find it in their local body of Christ. So ministry, my ministry emphasis would be on that. The academic emphasis would be on the other. Uh, let me throw something in here, kind of jumping off of Sam's question. Um, so what, what I hear you saying is that with respect to any really good research from psychologists or sociologists on gender, masculinity, femininity, that, that, that's really not out there. You don't have anybody to recommend. About 20 years ago, uh, there was a book uh, edited by Piper and Grudem uh, called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and, and they made some attempts in that book uh, to, uh, to theologically define uh, masculinity, and femininity, uh, manhood, and womanhood. Uh, how do you think those uh, uh, you know, pastors and theologians that have tried to work with Scripture, surely Scripture doesn't give us a definition, it just doesn't function that way, but, but people have tried to work with what the Bible does have to say uh, by precept, by principle, by, by stories uh, about uh, masculinity and femininity and what it means to be a man. What it means to, and, and so we do have some writing there. How does that enter into the fray? You know, I probably have to revisit uh, those resources to see how those enter into the fray. I think... Um, my recollection was they weren't directed towards the current, like where we are in the 21st century discussing the deconstruction of gender identity and biological sex in the transgender discussion. So they were, they were much more, if I recall, about the complementarian egalitarian debate. 
So there's uh, elements that might be exported from that into this discussion, but I think there would be a lot of work that would have to be done from what was um, a, an attempt to lay a, to, 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 you know, to grapple with scripture, but to, um, so I'm not, I, I think we'd have to do a lot more work to bring what might have been a contribution then into kind of the nature of the debate here, because it's a more, I mean, they would overlap in some ways, but it's a more fundamental debate about sex and gender that's being deconstructed than what I think of as a narrower debate. Um, so anyway, yeah. my impression. Okay. Gene? My name is uh, Gene Burris, and my question has to do with happiness and flourishing. Um, a, a significant argument in our culture for why same-sex sexuality should be accepted is because it, it helps you flourish, it helps you find happiness, um, love. So um, as the church community, having the traditional sexual ethic as a constraint, um, how, how can we help sexual minorities flourish, find happiness, uh, live with joy, um, and, and offer a counter-argument? Yeah, so our main, uh, I would say in the last 15, 20 years, the about 15, 20 years ago, the main narrative to flourish was make them straight. And I, what I see at Christian colleges and universities and seminaries around the country is a diminished ex-gay narrative as promising the path to flourishing. Now, I'm not, now, if you know someone for whom this is their testimony, I'm not detracting from that. I know people for whom that is their testimony, but for every one of them, I know many, many more people whose testimony is God's enduring presence in their life while they still experience same-sex attraction. So that's the challenge here pastorally. How do you help the majority of people flourish if the only models we put up on the, at the pulpit are the examples that are pretty, pretty rare? And I think that's been a, been a mistake. I'd like to see a correction where we would have more testimonies of God meeting people where they are and helping them flourish with a more enduring condition. And I think we do that with other things better than we do that here. Um, I don't think many young people, 15, 16, know of people at 25 or 26 who have been navigating this path. We don't, we don't hold them up as models in our churches of God's presence in their lives and God helping them flourish. So our young people don't have anyone to look to. Now, I think there are those voices. I know several uh, personally, but they don't have the kind of platforms um, where a young person would look to. So where does a young person go? A friend of mine was just telling me what she thinks about where young people go. They go to YouTube. They go watch young people talk about their gay relationship and talk about their gay life and how they flourish. Well, most of those YouTubers are not Christians. But a young Christian navigating these very questions will at least go to them because they have same-sex attractions like they have same-sex attractions. And there's not many Christian YouTubers modeling what that looks like in their life, right? So, uh, so that's a real challenge for them. Um, I think the voices like Wesley Hill, Christopher Yuan, um, Ron Belgau are examples of people who can flourish down this path. Other people are in mixed orientation marriages. Other people have stories of more, uh, more um, healing and change. But again, we've highlighted that those have been highlighted in our story. So these other voices, I think, need to be in play uh, for young people to say, there's a path. 
God's faithfulness will help me flourish. But do we have the courage to have them up on stage and say, let's talk about God's faithfulness in your life? We have time enough for one more question. Dr. Jones. Uh, Robert Jones, I teach here in counseling. Uh, Dr. Yarhouse, the, the language of, the use of language of, of sin for a unwanted desire, um, in what setting, maybe in what sense, uh, with what audience, would, would we use that term to describe a disordered affection? And maybe a follow-up with that is, Use the use of the terms repenting or mourning or anything like that for that person. Can you speak a little bit to that? So, um, the setting for me would probably be similar to to many of you in the church setting. So I'm a I, my, I I'm an elder in my local church, and I do my I, I elder or shepherd differently than I function as a psychologist when I'm a public psychologist licensed by the state of Virginia. So that would be a setting, I think, where you might have different language and constructs and conversation. I think what we want to be careful about is what are we repenting of? What exactly is the thing that we are, um, what is the person morally culpable for? And my experience is I've met with people, young people, who've met with pastors who've told them, that their experience of same-sex attraction is willful disobedience, that just having it was that person's willful disobedience. And I think that has been um, very damaging to that person. Not suggesting you were, no, but I'm just, but I think it's been very damaging. I think that people find themselves with same-sex attractions around puberty, just like heterosexuals find themselves attracted to the opposite sex. So you, you don't choose to have your attractions, you find yourself with them. Now you have choices to make. How will you live your life in light of the attractions you have? Now we're talking about things that are volitional, and now I'm more comfortable talking about what what there am I to repent of. So if I've engaged myself in a habit of behaviors that characterize me as a person over time, and I, as an elder, am working with that person to cease that pattern of behavior then we can talk about repenting and turning away from habits and behaviors that characterize them over time that Christians have historically said are morally impermissible. This is immoral activity. So you repent of that. But I think to say to someone, now repent of the attractions that you've experienced since you were 12, I'm not sure what that, how that functions in a shepherding role. What can that person do? I guarantee you, well... Most of the people I've met have already had that prayer. They've asked God to remove it, and it's still there. It's a Pauline thorn in the flesh, if you want to go with that language. So I don't know that you then repent of that, but you repent of behaviors that are in your hands, willful disobedience, things that um, I think in that way are measurable. That's where I'm more comfortable with that language and would use it as an elder. Okay. 